Good almost afternoon, everybody. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes, nods, fabulous, okay. Just wanted to welcome you to this afternoon, almost, presentation titled Pharmacogenetics, to test or not to test. Our faculty today includes Dr. Timothy Atkinson, clinical advisor and pharmacy pain specialist at Axial Healthcare in Nashville, Tennessee, and director of PGY2 Pain and Palliative Care Residency Program. In addition, we have Dr. Jeffrey Feuden, adjunct associate professor at Western New England College of Pharmacy in Springfield, Massachusetts. So without further ado, I will turn it over to your speakers. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. <clears throat> Just before lunch, so we'll work up an appetite. Um, I'm thrilled to be here today uh, kind of debating against my very first resident several years ago. It's kind of like when your kids grow up and they start questioning you. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, so uh, here are my disclosures. If you want to get on that list, let me know. Um, all right. Uh, so the learning objectives today um, are three. So we have about 30 hours of information to get into 30 minutes. First, to describe common pharmacogenetic variants involved in the effects of medications used in uh, pain management. Uh, to delineate clinical situations in which obtaining a pharmacogenetic profile uh, might be useful <clears throat> uh, to treat pain, and explain how to develop individualized pain management regimens based on given pharmacogenetic profile, uh, if appropriate. So um, I thought it would be good to kind of start with uh, the fact that there are accessible guidelines uh, that you can, you can easily look up yourself. I, I don't have uh, the time to go through the various guidelines with you today. Uh, so instead, I provide you uh, with the links, because I don't want to take up any of Dr. Atkinson's time, so you can appropriately bash me. Um, so uh, what about uh, common, common pharmacogenetic factors? So uh, there are many. So there, there is a variability in response uh, to various medications, not just opioids, uh, but many drugs. We know that in the general population, there's between a 40 to 60% phenotype uh, variability, so that's very, very large. Um, and uh, we also know that the cytochrome enzymes that are most frequently involved in, uh, in these issues are 2D6, which is uh, commonly uh, employed in various opioids, such as uh, hydrocodone uh, and oxycodone, uh, also a number of antidepressants, in particular SSRIs and SNRIs, uh, oftentimes inhibit 2D6 isoenzymes, uh, 2C19, so 2C19, uh, is involved with citalopram metabolism. It's involved with carisoprodol uh, metabolism to mepomamate and several other uh, drugs. Uh, 2C9 uh, would be um, salicoxib, 3A4. Oh, my God, there's all kinds of drugs that affect 3A4. 1A2, uh, cigarette smoke. Uh, I, I don't suppose you have any pain patients that, that smoke cigarettes. Um, and then uh, CYP, uh, 2E1, uh, less common. Uh, and ge genetic differences uh, impact about 25% of all drugs uh, if we look at, at, at them more globally. So this is just to give an example with the opioids alone, uh, the kinds of issues that we're looking at. 2D, uh, codeine relies on 2D6 to be metabolized to morphine, which obviously is the active uh, component. Hydrocodone uh, 2D6 causes the more uh, metabolism to more active hydromorphone, 3A4 to inactive uh, uh, norhydrocodone. Um, and if you look below, oxycodone is the same sort of thing. 
So if you look at metabolism of phase one and phase two, phase one would be the cytochrome metabolism, and you can see that um, many of the opioids do go through cytochrome system for metabolism, either to active or inactive or both metabolites. And then phase two uh, pretty much avoids uh, the cytochrome metabolism. They include morphine, oxymorphone, hydromorphone. Tepentadol has a, a, a wee amount of 2C19 and 2D6, but it's very negligible. And I'm just noticing now a drug that's missing there is levorfenol, which has no cytochrome metabolism at all. So if we look at the variants and we split them out, uh, basically what it boils down to is, is you have to have um, a gene from your mother and your father. So this is how it works. Um, you've got variant genes and you've got wild genes. If you have two wild parents, so to speak, then, then that, that makes you, <laughs> don't let them lose in Vegas. If you have two wild parents, then you will be a, a wild phenotype, which means that you're an extensive metabolizer of the gene that we're discussing. So for each one of these cytochrome enzymes, 3A4, 2C19, 2D6, 2C9, whatever, for each one of them, you have, you have two genes. If there's two wilds, you're an extensive metabolizer, which is considered normal. If you've got a wild and a variant, uh, then you may be, let's say, a metabolizer, which could be 55 to 70% less. If you're a variant variant, you can be on either side of the spectrum, either very poor metabolizer or ultra-rapid metabolizer. So that's, uh, that's how it works. So if you were a poor metabolizer and you had the parent drug, the parent drug goes to, uh, I, I used uh, capital M for a, an active metabolite, uh, then you're not going to make the active metabolite. So if somebody that was on oxycodone would not be making a lot of oxymorphone. Um, so they'd get some benefit from oxymorphone. They'd get most of the benefit from oxycodone. Um, and if they were, um, and that's for 2D6, okay, because 2D6 converts oxycodone to oxymorphone. But if at the same time they're an ultra-rapid 3A4 metabolizer, then they would take the parent compound of oxycodone and metabolize it to its inactive form. All right? So there's a lot going on here. An intermediate metabolizer we talked about. So they're going to make uh, some uh, active drug. Um, a extensive metabolizer, again, this would be considered uh, normal. And the ultra-rapid is just going to uh, make, make lots of the end product, whether it's active or, or inactive. Uh, what this uh, slide does is it, it splits out uh, some of the, uh, the variations. And uh, I borrowed this uh, from uh, Dr. Pham, who, who was a resident that followed uh, Dr. Atkinson. He wasn't ready to debate against me this year, but he promises to kill me next year. So I don't, I don't know where is he, but he's probably in here. So there he is right there. Okay, so I borrowed this slide from him. So he, he uh, shows you here that... Uh, if you look at uh, Oceanian um, uh, phenotypes by ethnicity, um, ethni ethnicity then um, it shows that there's 20.5%. But if you compare that, uh, for example, to uh, Caucasian, it, uh, it's 6.1%. That's a huge, huge difference. And for those of you who don't know uh, what this is, um, that would be like New Zealand, Australia, some of those nice warm places. All right, so um, what this does, I, I included this chart because I wanted to point out to you just how common this is. So you see the various um, different drugs here on the left column, all right? Uh, very commonly prescribed tricyclics, um, fluvoxetine, fluvoxetine, fluvoxamine. Fluvoxetine, I'm going to point out, is a 1A2. So if you had to put a patient on SSRI 
and you are worried about the more common 2D6 or 3A4, then fluoxetine would be a good drug to use uh, because it's 1A2. Um, sertraline, citalopram, escitalopram, venlafaxine, all drugs that are commonly prescribed, um, bupropion, trazodone, so on and so forth. Um, now, I circled citalopram, venlafaxine, and bupropion for a reason. And the reason I did that is because citalopram relies on 2C19 for its metabolism, and so does carisoprodol. All right, and uh, uh, venlafaxine relies on 2D6 to metabolize it to its active uh, form of desmethylvenlafaxine, um, which has most of the norepinephrine reuptake inhibiting properties, uh, in, which is most important for treating uh, pain. And bupropion um, is important because bupropion uh, is, is, uh, uh, is uh, 2B6, and 2B6 is going to be important um, in tramadol metabolism. So all these things uh, can affect uh, the, the dose selection and really um, kind of bastardizes this whole concept of morphine daily equivalence, right? And I'm just going to uh, like toot my own horn here for a second. Um, I wrote this uh, for and, and with the Academy of Integrative Pain Medicine. I, I mean, when I say hot off the press, Erica, my resident from last year, just picked these up from FedEx. Uh, they printed them. We don't have a whole lot of them, but you can pick them up. You can be sure they'll be put out on social media. The title of this is uh, Opioid Dosing Policy. It's a white paper. Opioid Dosing Policy, Pharmacological Considerations Regarding Equi-Analgesic Dosing. Uh, and we, we kind of point out what all the problems are with specific uh, drugs in particular, uh, like methadone and buprenorphine, which are a real disaster uh, for morphine equivalents. And then uh, with methadone, I'm just going to quickly point out here uh, this is particularly dangerous because methadone has an enantiomer, and the S enantiomer, uh, as you can see on the bottom there, um, relies on 2B6. I guess it, I can't see the 2B6, but if you are a, a, a poor a two, a 2B6 metabolizer, uh, then you would kind of be stuck in this parent drug, and that drug causes tordesades. It's a bit of a problem, right? Um, uh, this slide here. Uh, goes through various genes and how it affects various drugs. And again, I'm not going to uh, go through them, but the references um, uh, are there for you. You can pull that reference. Uh, this talks about antipsychotics, which ones um, have important um, predilection towards uh, 2D6, 3A4, or 1A2, just to show you how ubiquitous this is. Um, some of the barriers to adapting these things in clinical practice uh, are listed there for you. Uh, so I'm not going to, to read them in the um, interest of time. Um, and here's some challenges, which will wrap up for you both of these slides at the end. Uh, so if, you know, I didn't read them for you line by line, but I promise to come back to these things. Um, and then uh, very quickly, a case here. I'm not going to go through this line by line either. This is a real case. Uh, it was submitted to the Journal of uh, uh, Pain Research. This was a patient that pharmacogenetically came back as a uh, reduced activity with COMT. Um, reduced activity for MTHFR, which neither of which are cytochrome uh, issues, but both of these uh, enzymes are very important in order to treat patients with depression, and also uh, they, are, they will be important in order for opioids to have maximum activity. Um, so uh, this is a patient that didn't respond to multiple medications. Uh, she had all kinds of uh, medical problems. She had all kinds of problems with... Um, multiple trials of medications, and she didn't respond to any of them. So what did we do? We simply put this woman on 
We wanted to put on N-methylfolate, but the VA wouldn't pay for it because it's considered a food product instead of a drug. So I'm like, fine, we'll give him the Mark, we'll give it the Mark Spence of leucovarin, which is folinic acid, the active form. So we gave her uh, leucovarin. I believe we gave her zinc as well because it depletes zinc. Uh, and and uh, oh yeah, we did. It's on there, 220 milligrams. Um, and her pain level uh, went down from 10 to 10, down to two out of 10. All right. And eight, eight months later, she is stable with no medication changes. We did not have to give her opioids. All we had to do was give her leucovarin. All right, you're up, Dr. Atkinson. Want to shake first? Yeah, it's probably better now. <clears throat> Can everybody hear me? In the back, good? <clears throat> okay. Well, Dr. Feuden is quite the wizard, <clears throat> but don't let the bright spinning bow tie mesmerize you too much, okay? <clears throat> the smoke and mirrors part of the presentation is over. I don't know about uh, all of you, but for the last several years, all you hear about is pharmacogenetics. It's going to fix everything. It's going to solve all of our problems. You know, it's the future of medicine. Well, it's not quite all cracked up to be what it's been advertised to be. So without any further ado, the first thing that I learned in my clinical training is don't order a test if the result will not change treatment. Okay. Well, let's just see what the effects are of ordering pharmacogenetic testing. And nobody really talks about how prevalent these you know, genetic variants are and how profoundly or how the lack of profound effects that these often have. So let's just talk about that specifically regarding opioids. So without further ado, the reason not to test, number one, only the rarest of pharmacogenetic phenotypes can affect dosing. So this is a representation of the cytochrome system and how it metabolizes drugs. 3A4, as most of you know, metabolizes the most medications, but it is not influenced to any significant extent by genetics. The second most common enzyme in the cytochrome system in terms of metabolizing drugs is 2D6. It's also the most polymorphic, the most impacted by genetics. It also happens to be a critical pathway for opioid metabolism, and so potentially could have the most impact on pain management. But as Dr. Feuden said, it's really the ultra-rapid metabolizers and the poor metabolizers that can significantly impact treatment. Your ultra-rapid metabolizers with high enzyme activity really means that they have the potential to convert the parent drug into a more active or a more potent form. The poor metabolizers convert very little of that, and it may be dysfunctional. They may not be able to convert it at all. So how common is this? He showed you this, and I gave it to Dr. Pham, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> but I want you to notice just how common the phenotypic expression of 2D6 variants is you know, by the different ethnicities. There's ultra-rapid metabolizers, which as you can see, if you're Middle Eastern, or if you are a Filipino, or if you are Polynesian, it's much more likely. That's the only way you get into double digits. 
but ultra-rapid metabolism rarely causes us too many problems in pain management. After all, how many people are coming into your office, knocking on your door saying, these drugs are too strong, can you please reduce this? That generally doesn't sit, sit, tend to be the side of the problem we worry about too much, right? Because that's ultimately what would happen is they would get more out of the medicine. We all know what to do with that without a genetic test, right? You reduce the dose, you make some adjustments, you don't need a genetic test to tell you that. But the one that does significantly impact clinical practice, or at least has the potential to do so, is the poor metabolizers. These are the ones that we have been led to believe <clears throat> are out there, it's very prevalent, it's affecting practice, and these patients are not getting what they need to out of their medications. So they're, they're telling us that a one to two percent prevalence in most populations here is significantly affecting drug therapy. That's kind of a stretch. Only in the Caucasian population does it max out at about 6%. So this is not very common. Reason to test number two. The pharmacogenetic changes of opioids only impact minor active metabolites and only profoundly affect weak opioids and prodrugs. So let's just review the metabolism of opioids. Through the 2D6 pathway, you have the conversion of oxycodone to oxymorphone, which is a substantial upgrade. It's two times stronger than the parent drug. But only 10 to 14% of the total dose is converted from oxycodone to oxymorphone. Not, that's not very much. Hydrocodone, it's even worse. Less than 3% of the total dose of hydrocodone is converted to hydromorphone. So even though that results in an active metabolite that is four times stronger than the parent, it's still an insignificant amount overall. In short, if we're to believe that pharmacogenetics has the ability to dramatically impact clinical practice, then you are essentially saying that 1% of the population is not benefiting from 10% of the drug, and therefore that justifies them being on two to three times the dose that you would expect. I just don't buy it. The weaker opioids, tramadol and codeine, are prodrugs, and they receive a substantial upgrade via 2D6, so they are profoundly affected. Tramadol is about 6,000 times less affinity for the mu opioid receptor compared to morphine. But after a 2D6 metabolism, it's converted into its active metabolite, desmethyltramadol, or the M1 metabolite, and at that point, that huge upgrade in potency, about 200 times less than morphine, is roughly equivalent to codeine. So yes, theoretically, if they were a poor metabolizer of 2D6, then they wouldn't be receiving the full benefit of tramadol. But even if they are, it's relatively equivalent to codeine. Codeine is similar. It's the conversion to morphine that gives it its analgesic properties. So the weak opioids are profoundly affected but the traditional opioids, the ones that everybody would have you believe are significant, just aren't. Reason not to test number three. <clears throat> so the mu opioid receptor gene, there's a lot of mixed evidence on this one. 
It's exciting research because this is the mu opioid receptor, this is the site of action, this is the binding site for all opioids, both those that our body produces naturally and those that are introduced via medications. It's involved in pain perception and opioid response. The single nucleotide <coughs> polymorphism or SNP that is most associated, most researched, and uh, as far as we know, most impacts treatment would be the A118G variant. So what does that look like? As you can see, the prevalence here, again, across different ethnicities, you have Caucasian, Israeli, Italian, the Asian population has been well studied across several different variants. And the wild type, or the AA gene here, is a normal response to opioid therapy. And AG is a variant that has a decreased response to opioid therapy. Whereas the GG variant has a decreased response, and in, in those studies, there was, there was kind of mixed results. There are two studies that show there's really no effect on dosing with the variants. And there was uh, two studies that showed there was about a 30 to 50% increased requirement for opioid therapy based on that variant. The interesting thing is based on ethnicity, it looks like the Asian population has a much higher incidence of this variant, whereas in most European and Middle Eastern populations, it seems to be, again, pretty rare. And so, having a decreased response to opioid therapy with the AG variant, that may be somewhat more common, but even the GG variant is still roughly 30% at best, an increased requirement for opioid therapy, meaning that it's no surprise that the evidence is mixed on this. And even the more common variants haven't resulted in changing a lot of the clinical studies into a more significant result. But don't take my word for it. Let's, let's look at the guidelines. What do the guidelines recommend on this? Well, the guidelines that Dr. Fuden so um, graciously introduced to us um, recommend this as a level C or D quality evidence here. Let's see, is that any good? Let's go to the description here. Oh, it says evidence levels can vary. No prescribing actions are recommended. Mostly weak evidence, it says, possibly less effective. Um, dosing based on genetics makes no convincing difference. That's not enough to get me excited. Let's, let's go back to the practical about what happens in clinic, okay? This is what patients say to us in clinic. I think I'm immune to these medications. My body processes these drugs differently than other people. Boy, doctors are always surprised at how much higher doses I need to receive relief. Opioids just don't seem to affect me like they should. You know, we all want to give patients the benefit of the doubt, right? We all want to believe our patients. And you know what? If, if they tell you that they're not metabolizing it correctly, that's wonderful if they have the test, and it shows that. But they generally don't, do they? So instead of automatically saying to ourselves, perhaps this is the 1% of patients that has that genetic mutation where they don't get 10% of the drug response and that would then warrant two to three times the amount of opioid that I feel comfortable prescribing to them. Perhaps instead of saying that, we should just be saying, you know, maybe this just isn't the best medication for you. Back to you, Grandpa.
That's, that's why you said that. Okay, so um, that was excellent. But um, I do want to point out that Dr. Atkinson seemed to perseverate over hydrocodone and oxycodone. Uh, and he actually showed you data on a couple of these slides where these numbers are pretty big with the OPMR, the OPRM1 uh, gene, 58%, 38%, 28%, 24%. Those are big numbers, all right? Um, so I'm going to point out a few other things that Dr. Atkinson actually put in print. So be careful what you say, but be more careful what you write. He said... Likewise, pharmacogenomic testing for, uh, for crucial metabolic pathways should enable prediction of clinical drug response. Alternative facts. <laughs> Number two, no, ex no experienced pain clinician would believe that oxycodone 5 to 10 milligram dose every four hours would adequately treat every patient's pain regardless of 2D6 phenotype. This is in part due to polymorphic differences in opioid receptor makeup among various patients. <laughs> he goes on to say, pharmacogenomics and targeted drug monitoring combined with clinical pharmacokinetics could have widespread applicability to improve patient outcomes. Now, I want to remind Dr. Atkinson and any of my previous trainees that the Stratton VA PGY2 residency program is like the Hotel California. You can check out, but you never really leave. So, um, in conclusion, barriers to adaption of this clinical practice are really because of, there's a fragmentation in healthcare systems that preclude linking a lifetime genetic test with the result for future medical use. Uh, so yes, it is a relatively early science. Um, the other issue is that there's an inability to share electronic medical records for all sorts of reasons. It would be great. Um, I mean, there are some models where uh, community pharmacists are actually getting the results of the tests and adjusting therapy under collaborative, collaborative prescribing agreements uh, in various places throughout the United States. Uh, so it could, be, it could be a vital link to adjusting medication, dosing or selecting alternative medications. In some cases, could help advocate for non-formulary medications because the cost of multiple trials, uh, if you give the right drug up front, uh, is, is, um, is probably cost-effective. Uh, testing should be done preemptively. We shouldn't wait for the patient to come in and, and complain. If you have a really good handle on some of these enzymes, if we're talking solely about cytochrome, I agree. Sometimes you don't need to do the test. It becomes obvious if the patient had an issue with six different drugs that are indicated for six different indications, and they, had, they all have a common enzyme. Uh, I, I agree that it might be wise to just trial a drug that goes to a different system um, that the patient might benefit from. Um, so, um, that's, so those are some issues. The challenges for implementation is an absence of universal definition for processes required both to interpret the genotype uh, and to translate that genetic information. There is a need for recommended drug gene pairs to implement clin clinically today, and we really don't have that. And there's been clinician resistance cons to considering pharmacogenetic uh, information and based on what Dr. Atkinson just said, I'm gonna, he's going to be the president of that club. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, there's the expense. Um, and there is expense with this, but it begs the question, what's the expense of not doing it uh, over, over time? So that's it. Um, 
I think if you have any questions, it'll need, probably need to come up and, and ask them. Although nobody's clamoring to get in here, so I guess we can take a couple of questions. Yes. I, I do want to mention that I do have a few of those uh, morphine equivalent things if you want to come up here. Question. I think that all of us agree. I mean, I don't think that it should be um, ordered for everybody. I think that if it was, if it was very, very inexpensive, I mean, it's not that expensive anymore, but if it was very, very inexpensive, then I believe that everybody should be genetically tested because it would help guide therapy from birth forward. And over the course of one's lifetime, it would certainly be cost effective. So if we did it preemptively, that's one thing, as long as it was cost effective. I mean, it, it, they, people test infants for some ridiculous things that are like, like less than 0.01%, right? So if, if for $200 you could do a panel of genetic testing, to me it makes sense. Um, but I agree. You know, you know fast forward, the, the, the patient is now 30 years old. Is it worth ordering a genetic test just for the heck of it? No, I, I don't think that it is. I think that we have to have a reason. I don't know if I think that Tim probably feels the same way. Yeah, I do. I, and I would say that I intentionally avoided um, other classes of drugs and other enzymes, um, other genes where the evidence is much stronger. Um, just picking out those where it was, you know, a, we, there was a stronger argument. But in terms of antidepressants and antipsychotics, um, there, there certainly, especially with um, multiple, multiple gene studies, you know, there, there's much better evidence. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, your slide indicated that less than three percent of Mm -hmm. That's not consistent with what I've read. I've read 20, 25%. Um, how accurate is your, how long ago was that, that number? Um, that was one of the most recent uh, pharmacokinetic studies. Um, what is that, uh, that um, abuse deterrent hydromorphone that just came out? Or the hydrocodone. It was um, Heislinga. If you look at the pharmacokinetic studies that um, help Heisingla get approved, then that's where you'll see that. And um, you could make the argument that be, that was a, a much lower rate because it was extended release instead of immediate release. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of studies that have looked at hydrocodone to hydromorphone. Less than 3%. That's 40% is, is high. Less than 3% is low. Um, the, the studies that I've read over several years, it's around 2%. For, for hydrocodone, and it's around for hydrocodone to hydromorphone. 2%. Yeah, it's around two percent, and for and for oxycodone, we usually say twelve percent, but I think you said ten to fourteen. Mm -hmm. So I think we're in agreement with that. But yeah, yeah. So the study that that Tim is quoting, um, they come from the extended release, and I, I don't really know how. I, I think it's kind of different because the kinetics are different of extended release as it is, you know, compared to IR. So you're not going to see the same outcomes because the peaks are different, the peaks mm -hmm. and troughs. So you're not, you know what I'm saying? You're, on, the, on the back end of it, you're not going to see the same metabolite. I just remember it's much higher in 
Well, so urine drug screens, there's, that's a whole separate issue. Whole separate yeah. Okay, thank you all very much.